The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 3, Saturday, December 2nd, 2023. Hello, listeners. I'm Mike Voiles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website containing a wide array of features, all dedicated to comic books. Hey everyone, this is your host Peter, with the 22nd Digest of this third volume, covering Monday, November 27th through Friday, December 1st, 2023. To start this week's Digest here on Monday, November 27th, I just wanted to make note that uh, the comics community was informed that we lost one of our own today. And that person is Mike Voiles of the Mike's Amazing World of Comics website. Now, if you've been listening to the Daily Rios for any length of time, you know that I like to do a lot of comic history, comic anniversary talk. And whenever I compile that information, I try to be sure to always use release dates rather than cover dates. And one of the websites that I use, besides some of my own personal archives, is Mike's Amazing World of Comics. There's a section on there called Newsstand, and you can go in and see every comic that was released on a particular date uh, from... Uh, most companies, any company that was at least 20, 20 years old at the time that Mike was doing a lot of this compiling. And you can go in week to week and see every book that shipped that week, either in alphabetical format, or you could even do it by the, the date of that particular month. You know, the first week, the second week, the third week, the fourth week, etc., it is just a wealth of information, and you can also look by cover dates as well, but I like to use the release dates. And then you get to see titles, and you get to see in what order these books were released, where annuals fall within a title, and it is incredibly well-researched. There's a section on the website that talks about where all this information came from, But this is a website that I've used uh, either specifically for information or as reference to the information that I have. I've been using this for such a long time. The way this news broke was uh, by me hitting the website. I mean, it's one of my bookmarks. And there was a farewell message right on the front page. And it features Death, the character of Death, um, from The Endless, as drawn, I'm assuming, by Chris Pacello. And it's a lovely, lovely message. It says, Welcome to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. It was my recent pleasure to help Mike on his way. No, this isn't a fit of delirium. It's real. But don't despair. Everything will be peachy keen. His website will not meet with destruction. It was Mike's desire that his site remain endless. He made arrangements regarding the destiny of the site. Sleep well, for his dream will continue for a long time to come, until we meet again. And then there's a quote from Delirium and Dream from Sandman 43, and another one from Cain the Caretaker and Abel, from Sandman 71. That was the message that hit as soon as you entered the site. And I did, you know, I went around to other websites, to Twitter, and sure enough, people were talking about this. A lot of people use this website, especially podcasters. And it was sad. It was sad to see. It was sad to see, but it was also welcoming to see that the site would continue. Um, because it's just invaluable. It's, there's, there's so much content on here, not just the newsstand section, but you can go in and you can read Mike's origin story where, uh, he sometime in the eighties decided 
after a conversation with another customer in a comic store that he was going to collect every DC Comics from that point on and then try to also find as much as he could uh, from previous years. And he said he started in 1987 to really buy everything that he could that DC put out. He also tried between 1989 and 1994 to collect everything that Marvel had put out, as well as other publishers. But he had to stop that because he wanted to just keep going with his huge DC collection. He was probably about a year or so younger than than I am, because um, he said he was like around 12 or 13 in, in 1985. There isn't much information at this point uh, about exactly what uh, happened, but it's still... Very sad to note and and kind of shocking in a lot of ways. So as I mentioned, the site has a bunch of other sections that I know people would love to see. Um, besides the newsstand section, there are a bunch of reports, such as all the comics published per year. There's a Daily Planet house ad section. All of the Daily Planet's... Um, uh, pages scanned in between 1976 and 1981. There are other galleries such as the Hostess, Pie ads, all scanned in. There's a section for retailer exclusive covers, a gallery that displays uh, retail variant covers over the years, and and you can see you know which stores. Um, had exclusive covers through their stores or through conventions. There's a crossover guide, a newspaper strip reprint guide that tells you where the strip showed up in comic book form. There's a podcast. It only has 16 episodes. It started in 2013, ended in 2017. Mike's Amazing World of DC History. Mike was just a big, big fan of DC Comics. And just a whole bunch more of information. It's one of those sites that I'm so thankful that it's continuing. Um, I didn't talk about it enough, but I know people know about it. You know, when Comic Book DB closed in 2019, that left a huge hole in terms of websites that were cataloging ca comics in a way that was very user friendly. Now, I know about the Grand Comics database and other websites but you know comic book db really was an amazing site and then it was bought out for one reason or another and there's, and then just never continued some of it i think the company that bought it out i think they just probably wanted to own it so that there was no website confusion between the two and we just never got that back again which was really uh, a shame um so this this website very easy to use, very, it's fun to, to um, browse through the sections, and it just has so much information. And I think it was still being updated at least sometime in, in the beginning of 2023, um, in terms of Marvel and DC, you know, I don't know about the other publishers, but what a wealth of information. I use it for every podcast, the Daily Rios, the Legion Project, DC All-Stars. It is a testament to, to Mike and to his obsession, the obsession that a lot of us collectors have. And um, the, the information I hope will live on because then Mike lives on. And really, um, if you haven't used it, please do. And, um, you know, just, just sad, just sad to see that that happened. And for someone that was that young, um, and, and quite unexpected, but I wanted to share that in case anybody hadn't heard Mike's amazing world of comics. Again, a fabulous site. It's Mike's amazing world.com. And I think, I think you're just going to enjoy everything you find on there. If you haven't been there and, you know, just spare a thought uh, for, for Mike.
TV Tuesday. Scott Pilgrim takes off. So this is an animated version of the Scott Pilgrim comics developed by the original creator Brian Lee O'Malley and Ben David Grabinski for Netflix. All the episodes dropped on November 17th. As I said, it's based on the Scott Pilgrim graphic novels. Uh, and the voice actors are all of the main cast from the 2010 film adaptation, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which was directed by Edgar Wright, one of just, just a movie that I adore and I tend to watch way too often. So I came to Scott Pilgrim because we did a Book of the Month Club on the first two volumes on CGS way back when the movie was about to be released. And I fell in love with it right away. Eventually, when the movie was released, I managed to get an advanced screening. And Volume 6 had just come out, I think, shortly before the movie came out. And I remember standing in line in Philadelphia waiting to see the movie. And people were reading the graphic novels and reading that final one before the movie. It was one of the greatest film audience, um, fil yeah, one, one of the greatest audience experiences I had in a movie because everybody there was a fan. We got all the jokes. It was such a good time. The movie was so good. And then after that, um, you know, they've done, they did a, a video game. Uh, there were some random stories here and there, obviously a whole bunch of different collections. There was a hardcover collection that they colored the series because it was in black and white and um i love it I, ju I just think it's just one of those stories that i quite adore now obviously from the graphic novels to the movie there were some differences and then from like even the movie to the video game there were obviously some things that um you know were different and updated so when they announced that they were going to do an animated series. I thought, great, okay, I'll watch it. I'm sure there'll be some things that they'll update, but all the cast is back again. That's amazing, you know? Um, I assumed it was just going to be a straightforward adaptation. When I decided to watch the, um, the, the Netflix show for this segment, I thought, well, I'll probably watch all eight episodes because it, it, I'm assuming, is just going to tell the same story that the graphic novels told, right? Um, that was my plan, to just talk about all eight episodes and see how it holds up. So then I watched just episode one, and you're watching it, and you can see how there are scenes that are closer to the graphic novel than what the movie did, but yet you can also see how it's very inspired by the movie, which makes sense because the movie was very inspired by the graphic novel. Having all the same actors, quite wonderful. Um, you know, the voices sound familiar. I adore uh, Ramona Flowers because of the movie and because of um, the graphic novels. And it's probably the thing that made me fall in love with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm watching it. Great. Everything seems to be, you know, right in line with what I know. I didn't try to do any research before I watched it. Um, little slight changes here and there. And then I think like the first major change in the first episode is you actually see Gideon and Matthew Patel way before they show up in in the actual story. So the whole League of Seven Xs um, makes an appearance way before they should. And I, again, I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Only eight episodes. They, they kind of want to bring that in early because that information doesn't come out until later. So that made sense. All good. Things are moving along. Scott meets Ramona Flowers. He's dating Knives. Uh, he invites Ramona to the Battle of the Bands to see his band. And when we get there, the band that was supposed to open isn't there. And, I, you know, again, I'm not thinking anything of it. Okay, just a little bit of a slight change. I don't know if that means anything. 
Um, there are some scenes that you don't see, you know, obviously, again, it has to be truncated from the graphic novels. Um, they are only half hour episodes and they only got eight of them. So, okay, great. Then we get the ending of episode one. And this is the reason why I'm only talking about episode one. So if you haven't seen it, you don't want to know, you can, you know, I would suggest go look at the timestamps and jump to the next segment. But we get to the end of episode one. And it's Scott Pilgrim versus Matthew Patel. He is the first of the seven evil exes. And before they even really get into any major fighting, Matthew Patel wins. He defeats Scott Pilgrim. And if you know the story and you know the movie, whenever Scott Pilgrim beats one of the exes, they vanish and a bunch of coins fall to the floor, very much like a video game, right? The whole thing's based on video game logic. But in this instance, Scott Scott is defeated and he vanishes and laying on the ground is $2.10, I think, which I don't know if that means anything. I didn't look it up, but I was like, uh, what? What just happened? And so were all the other characters too. Even Matthew Patel was like, wait a minute, I won? And then it very quickly cuts to the end credits. And I thought, huh? Wait, what? And then I started thinking about like the episode as a whole, like, is that why some of the stuff was different? Are things different about this world and about the way they're telling this version of the story? And, you know... Knowing that these digests are going to be late, right? You're, I don't know when you're actually going to hear this. By the time you hear this, you know, you obviously may have already seen all this. There might have, there's probably been discussion. It might be weeks. It might be, might be months. I don't know. But I was really kind of taken by that because I just assumed this was a straightforward adaptation. Everything that led up to promoting this I again I'm just thinking like the movie I'm just gonna watch the graphic novel come to life in animation form nope that 10 I that's not the case and I just kind of briefly looked at the synopsis for the next episode and I was like okay there's no way I can do all eight episodes you know I just want to talk about this first episode because um you were kind of lulled. I, I was lulled throughout the episode because it is all the same actors. I was like, oh, great, yeah. No, I don't really notice any of these changes. And then you get to the ending and I'm like, oh, am I going to go back and watch this again by the time all eight episodes are done and get an appreciation of this first episode again? Are there things that I missed that maybe there are some clues to what's going on? So, um, And suddenly the whole title, Scott Pilgrim Takes Off, means exactly what it says. He took off. He's he's out. He I'm assuming. I'm assuming he's out of the series and I have no idea where it's going to come from where it's going to go from here. So consider me completely surprised by this opening episode um which is great because it just makes me invested in something that that I think I was just going to casually watch because I'm a fan. Now I'm invested, you know. And if it's some kind of, I don't want to say multiversal take, but if that's what they're doing, they're kind of playing around with the notion that this story can be told a different way because there are already versions of this story that exist. Great. I think that's great. I think it's wonderful. I'm really looking forward to it. So if you haven't seen it, Scott Pilgrim takes off um, and you're listening this far, you obviously know the setup, but from here, I have no idea what's going on. Um, if all that sounds interesting, great, watch it. If you have seen it, let me know. Try not to spoil things. Again, I don't know when you're listening to this. Um, I don't know if I will have seen all the episodes by the time you've seen this, uh, by the time you listen to this yet. Um, I, I just thought it was great. Uh, you know, was anybody else surprised? Um, the animation is, 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 I almost don't even care that it's not, um, not anything super modern. It feels right. It feels like the comic book come to life and it feels like a video game come to life. I don't want it to be uh, flashy. I don't want it to be updated. I want it, want it to be what that world is. 
what a treat to come back to these characters again, to come back to this world again, and be completely surprised. High marks for me for that. And uh, I will... I'll see. I'll see if I do want to watch a few more episodes and then talk about it again. Um, or if I just want to wait until the end. It depends on, you know, what else I can talk about. Really, for me, it was just the surprise. I just wanted to talk about the surprise. You know, I was like, that's amazing. So cool. So Scott Pilgrim takes off. Look for it on Netflix. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of November 29th. Before we get to the recommendations, I just want to talk a little bit about some Black Friday weekend shopping that I did at Golden Eagle. Uh, They were having a sale on all of their back issues, and they had a number of dollar boxes and a number of 75 cent boxes even some 25 cent boxes and i didn't go too crazy again i'm trying to cut back on um, paper but i bought about 30 or 40 different comics and i think altogether it cost me like i don't know anywhere from i think the majority of the comics that i bought uh, was like for $11. And then I bought a mini series of prestige format comics and those were in a pack for 10 bucks. So that took me up to like $20 or something like that. So I got, you know, a a bunch of comics for very little. And most of it was just, you know, random things like always trying to fill some holes in my collection for issues of Green Lantern Corps, that were post-Sinestro Corps War, a random Brave and the Bold issue during the 2000s run, some OMAC issues also during the 2000s that I missed out on because that character is one of my favorite characters. Uh, I got Black Condor number one from 1992 by Brian Augustin and Rags Morales. That series only ran 12 issues might have gained some popularity because the Ray miniseries was released a year before that with Joe Casada on artwork. So maybe they thought they could, you know, do a revamp of Black Condor. And it also takes place in Philadelphia. So I've always been curious about that. It might be on the DCU app, but I saw the first issue and I was like, yeah, I'll pick that up. By the way, Brian Augustin, I'm not sure if I mention it here anywhere on the digest, he passed away back in February of 2022. I think he was a longtime friend and writing partner for Mark Wade. But yeah, he died um, at a relatively young age. Uh, I also picked up some Keith Giffen books, Heroes Squared, Love and Death, number one, from Boom Studios that he did with Jam DeMatteis and various artists. I had those before. Um, and I was like, oh, you know, I'll just pick them up again. And then I picked up Dominion number one, also from Boom Studios by Keith Giffen and Ross Ritchie. This one with artwork by Tim Hamilton and written by Michael Allen Nelson. And it's all concerning of an alien virus that spreads and gives people superpowers. So... Keith Giffen and Ross Ritchie did a version of this at Image Comics for only two issues in 2003, and Giffen did do the artwork on those. And then they decided to revamp it and release it through Boom. Um, I'm assuming a bunch of issues came came out because then there was also a trade. So I wanted to see like how those stories differed. Even though it was the same story, I wanted to see how they changed it up when they when they brought it to Boom. And then the miniseries I got was Adventures of Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty, four issues from the early 90s, uh, written by Fabian Nicieza with art by Kevin McGuire. It's basically an expanded retelling of his origin story, which I collected at the time because Kevin McGuire was hot. I think this is like 1990, 1991, somewhere around there. And, um, you know, prestige format comics were, especially by then, they were a little more 
familiar or they were they were used more but it you know the Kevin Maguire art was a draw and then I remember really liking the story so I'm anxious to reread it to see how it holds up and to see if it has any impact on the Captain America first Avenger movie so so those are the books that I bought you know again I, I try not to back issue bin dive because as I um, am giving away selling and, and getting rid of comics I don't want to try to keep bringing them in even though I am picking up um, random back issues or getting DCBS orders you know which I'm also cutting back on. So, But I thought that might be fun to just talk about that for a little bit here at the start of New Comics Wednesday. And now that I did that, let me give you the recommendations for the week of November 29th, starting with Scout Comics. This Little Piggy number one talked about this on uh, whatever preview segment this connects to. Written by Sean Gabarin, who was a longtime member of the CGS community. Art by Carlos Lopez. Joe Picardo on cover art, $4.99. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always willing to support Sean's work, and uh, it was great to see that he was getting a new comic out there. So uh, I'll continue to support that and pick that up and hopefully talk about it once I read it all. From Opus Comics through Heavy Metal, we have Nadia and the Namobots number one, $4.99. This is by Diego Agrumbal, Juan Manuel Tumboris, and the blurb is, In Cilio City, emotions are literally sold in the streets. Humankind toils for the coldly sentient robot community called Namobots, producing emo pills designed to satisfy the automata's craving for sensations. Jimmy, a Namobot, rescues Nadia, a female human, from an emo pill, emo pill factory. Soon Jimmy finds out that humans are much more than the total sums of their emotions, an intriguing cyberpunk tale of social complexities, moral dilemmas, and plot twists. Some of the artwork seemed cool. The story, um, that, that little blurb, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll give that a, a, a little nod in case anybody's interested in that. And then uh, from DC Comics, Batman 89 returns with Echoes number one, $3.99. Sam Hamm, Joe Quinones, this feature features Batman, Harvey Dent. Um, I think we're getting a new Robin in this one. This is all based on the 1989 Batman movie universe. And they're doing this in conjunction with another Superman 78 uh, miniseries as well. They must have been popular enough the first time around for them to continue. And then like the music, uh, cute, well, I don't know if it's going to cue you in, but the music that opened the segment was for the promo for the latest event from DC Comics, Titans Beast World number one of six, $5.99. Tom Taylor, Yvonne Hayes, Danny Mickey. Uh, it's basically everybody against a Necrostar, which is, like, I'm assuming, kind of like a Starro, and what it does to the heroes and what it does to Beast Boy and how the Titans lead the way for this event. Uh, I think they say it's the first time the Titans... Um, yes, the Titans' first crossover as the world's premier superhero team. I also picked up an alt cover for this first issue by Archerm because it was going to feature Donna Troy. Once I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I got to get that. It's beautiful. And then finally, we have Danger Street, the uh, volume one soft cover, collecting the first six issues. I'm assuming most people probably want to read all 12, but if you're someone that likes soft covers... Uh, this is the first six issues for $19.99, Tom King, Jorge Fernez. Um, one of those stories that uh, I've been doing week to week here on the Digest, and I took a little break after issue eight, and later on in this Digest, you will get uh, Danger Street number nine, and uh, we'll talk about that on the Friday segment. But if, like I said, if you like softcover trades, there is the first trade. And then, as, as I said, I'm sure they're going to do a hardcover down the road. So there you go. Those are your recommendations for the week of November 29th. 
Kate Campbell's got to say yes. Tell me in 25 words or less why I'm marvelous Mark is a man of the hour. He's got the glory, got the power. You save the whales, I'll save the man. Don't let Mark be a fashion of pain. No, give us a call for the talent that shine. Give us the word, say the line, say I want Mark. Theater Thursday, Theater History, Part 3, for November, taking a look at the month of November by the date, not necessarily by the year, uh, taking a look at the dates 21 through the 30th. So unlike comic book history, where I focus on the year anniversary, this is just taking a particular month and going through and seeing if there are any anniversaries, birthdays, or other notable events that happen on a particular date. And as I mentioned, this is uh, November 21 through the 30th, although I did skip a few here and there. So we start with November 21st, back in 1934, Anything Goes premieres with Ethel Merman, music and lyrics by Cole Porter, the original book was a collaborative effort by Guy Bolton, P.J. Woodhouse, and revisions by Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss. The story takes place almost entirely on an ocean liner bound from New York to London. There are several different versions of the, of the libretto for Anything Goes. The original 1934 libretto... Uh, a revival in 1962, a revival in 1987, and one of the most recent revivals in 2011. This will definitely be a topic for a future Musical Monday because it is a show that I did. Um, you might know the songs, I Get a Kick Out of You, It's the Lovely, You're the Top, Friendship, and of course, the title song of Anything Goes. It has had several movie adaptations and also a movie on Cole Porter, um, which came out in 2004, called The Lovely. And it featured Kevin Kline as Cole Porter and Ashley Judd and other actors as well. It's quite a lovely, lovely little movie there. All right. Also, November 21st. From 1983, we get a mashup of comics and theater once again, or I should say comic strips, for the Doonesbury musical. That's right, there was a musical on Doonesbury, and that song that opened the segment is from this musical, by Gary Trudeau and Elizabeth Suedos. Uh, Suados, Suedos? I have no idea what this musical is about, other than that it's connected to the Doonesbury strip. I've never seen it. I've never heard it. I didn't realize there even was a musical. There are at least two different musicals for Peanuts, for Charlie Brown and the Peanuts Gang, but I didn't realize they did one for Doonesbury. So it takes place over the course of two days. Notably, the play depicts the, the core cast of characters perpetually 20-something undergraduates for the first 12 years of the strip's run, graduating college. And I, you know, I just have to imagine beyond that, it's just um, reflecting the comic strip. So maybe I'll have to take a listen to that. All right, let's go to November 22nd in 1965. Man of La Mancha finally opens off-Broadway after various tryouts and previews. Book by Dale Wasserman, music by Mitch Lee, lyrics by Joe Darian. It is adapted from Wasserman's non-musical 1959 teleplay, I, Don Quixote, which was in turn, obviously, inspired by Miguel de Cervantes and his 17th century novel, Don Quixote. The original 1965 Broadway production ran for 2,328 performances, and it won five Tony Awards, including Best Musical. You might know the song Impossible Dream. There was a movie in 1972 with Peter O'Toole and Sophia Loren. I quite love this musical. I think it's I think it's beautiful, haunting. It's got great music, great characters, a great premise once you know how the musical handles the story. And just one of those musicals that... If artistic directors, directors, casting directors, etc. are brave enough, it really should be done with an all-Spanish, uh, Latinx, Hispanic cast. 
Uh, let's jump to November 23rd in 2005. The Rent movie has its wide release based on the musical of the same name with most of the original Broadway cast present. It's not a it's 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 OK um, as a movie musical. It actually kind of works and it's fun to see the original cast and you might recognize some of the actors from Star Trek or Flash or other shows. November 24th, 1950, Guys and Dolls, the musical premiered on Broadway after a pre-Broadway tryout in Philly, and it was directed by George S. Kaufman with dances and musical numbers by Michael Kidd, who is just amazing. Music and lyrics by Frank Losser, book by Joe Swirling and Abe Burroughs. It is based on the short stories of Damon Runyon, and I believe they refer to it as like Runyon Land. And the stories are about gangsters and gamblers and other characters in the New York underworld. And it's known for its comic dialect, broad characters, and just colorful slang. It is a, just a great musical. It's done way too often at high schools. And sometimes I think it's not done well because of that. Because they don't get the, the humor and the, and the creativity. Um, it ran for 1,200 performances, won the Tony Award for Best Musical. There is a 1955 film adaptation starring Frank Sinatra, Marlon Brando, Gene Simmons, and Vivian Blaine. I don't, I've never seen it. I don't know how it holds up. I don't think it's well regarded, but I could be wrong. There was a revival in the early 90s when Broadway was really putting their money behind reviving a lot of these this older material and updating and just really showing how these classics could still be done in a modern era. And when that revival hit, sometime in the early 90s, I believe, it made Nathan Lane uh, a star. It's really the thing that kind of boosted his star power. Uh, and then from there, he would go on to uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum birdcage and you know everywhere else and then we jump to november 29th 1956 bells are ringing originally directed by jerome robbins choreographed by robbins and bob fossey and this would run for two years before moving to a, another theater and then running for 924 performances book and lyrics by betty comden and adolph green music by jewel stein and the story revolves around Ella, who works at an answering service, and all of the characters that she meets there. And you might know Just in Time or The Party's Over. Uh, it starred Judy Holiday as Ella, and Gene Stapleton was in the show, Eddie Lawrence. Judy would go to reprise her Broadway role in the 1960 film of the same name, also starring Dean Martin. And finally, November 30th, 1952, is the birth date of Mandy Patinkin. He turned 71 years old. I'm fairly certain when he turned 70 last year, I did a little segment on Mandy Patinkin on one of the digests. So there you go. That wraps up this month's three-part series of November theater history. If this is something that you like, uh, let me know. And then I'll, I'll do some more, you know. I'm finding new things that I never knew. And it's kind of fun to celebrate some of these classic uh, musical theater projects. Um, but I do every now and then find, um, like Doonesbury, I find a musical that's like, oh, I didn't know they did that. So I enjoy doing it. Maybe I need to truncate it and only make it two parts. But you let me know. Peter at thedailyrios.com. Let me know what you think of the segment and if I should continue. Danger Street Issue 9. Let's return to Danger Street. And we are kicking off Act 3, you could say. 
here with issue nine and I will eventually wrap up one issue for the next couple digests. We'll do issue 10, issue 11, and then issue 12. I have read up to issue 11 at this point, but, um, you know, again, try not to filter in later issues in these early issues. So this is Danger Street issue number nine. This is by Tom King, Jorge Fornes, Dave Stewart, Clayton Cowles, and... Um, this issue is a complicated issue. So the synopsis for this, the official synopsis, says, A true joust, the likes of which has not been seen since medieval times. Both knights, noble in their quest, are ready to do whatever it takes to bring honor to their sigil. Witness, manhunter, and codename assassin fight to the death in a match of wits and stamina, as the life of the Commodore and the universe hang in the balance. And that is what you get this entire issue. You get, uh, not a joust, but you get a sword fight between the Manhunter, who has been killing off members of the Green Team up to this point. That has been his mission for the entirety that, um, at least in terms of Danger Street, that has been the mission for all the Manhunters to, 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 to purge the world of their evil. Um, and he wields the Warlord's sword that uh, came into the possession of one of the Green Team members. So he's up against Codename Assassin, who is the bodyguard for the Green Team. He has a sword made from Metamorpho's diamond arm, which was also in the possession of one of the green team members, specifically the Commodore. And the two of them have been uh, on this hunt for each other, all these various issues. And last time around, last issue, issue number eight, we finally came, came to realize that they're going to come to a head. And that's what this issue is. It is one big sword fight. It is one big debate. Um, every page is broken up into eight panels. And it gives the book a little bit of a sense of, not necessarily claustrophobia, but you are right in on the action. But what you're focusing on is the dialogue between these two characters. Now remember, Danger Street has this ongoing over narrative that uh, the helmet of fate is uh, talking about like to us the the readers right and it's all very you know based around fairy tales and fables and that's why they call them knights and that's why we get this um, get this this final duel if you look at the cover the main cover by Jorge Fernez it is manhunter and codename assassin on top of the green team building in the middle, middle of a storm, there's a lightning strike, um, and it does feel like two knights on top of a castle or on top of a tower. So that that fairy tale feel does play out in the cover and not necessarily in the story, but um, um, that's there's like one or two dialogue passes where you're like, okay, that is almost skirting into the same language that the doctor the, the Felmet of, uh, Helmet of Fate is using throughout the series. The other cover, by the way, since this is issue number nine, it correlates to first issue special number nine that this entire series is based on, right? That title from the 70s. Um, it is the Walt Simonson cover featuring Dr. Fate, even though he's not <laughs> present at all in this uh, issue. Uh, so it's Walt Simonson, Laura Martin on colors, featuring Dr. Fate holding up his arms, and there's a whole bunch of onks and hieroglyphics behind him, and he's holding his cape and holding it out, almost like in a way Batman would a little bit. I, th I thought that was unusual. We don't see that. That's not a common pose, right? Fate doesn't necessarily pose with his cape. He might use it for his magics, but I don't necessarily... Um, remember him like, you know, going, here's my cape, you know, uh, it, it, 
it's not like I've seen every Dr. Fate cover. But it also reminds me a bit of All-Star Squadron 47 by Todd McFarlane and Tony DeZaniga, which was the secret origin of Dr. Fate issue, uh, an issue that's very um, hard to find, apparently, you know, because there's some value to it because of Todd McFarlane. But those two covers have similar feels. So issue number nine, complicated, complicated issue. Uh, as I read it, when I when I read it for the first time, I was like, whoa, this is this is how it's going to be the whole issue. Okay, interesting. And I'll talk about some thoughts about, you know, the execution of this story uh, near the end. Generally, the first read, I think I was just reading it because there was just so much dialogue and I was getting the idea here and there and, you know, following the debate, the, the, the physical um, interplay between them, but also the wordplay in between them and... It, it makes sense, you know, but it was not an issue I was expecting. And then I put it away, and then when I read it a second time for this digest, I was like, okay, okay, I'm following it a little bit more. I'm trying to keep in mind everything that came before it and really trying to pay attention to each segment of the debate just as you would in sword fighting. So... Um, way back in my university years, I did take stage combat for several semesters, you know, and you have to learn how to fight with all different kinds of weapons. So there was a part in the artwork that I was trying to follow the actual choreographed sword play. Um, some of it does make sense with some of the strikes that you learn and some of the passes and, uh, you know, the slices and, and the parries and this is not fencing, right? So it's, it's not fencing, it's sword fighting, which is completely different. And I know that one of the main themes when we got into sword fighting is that swords are heavy. And they are meant to cut and chop and slice. They're not meant to always necessarily stab. Um, and they are heavy, so they take a toll on you. And you had to show that in your choreography, and you had to show that, you know, you can't just be flipping the sword around by, you know, if you're doing like a three-minute fight or a five-minute fight, by the end, it's going to get a little tiresome. And um, we looked at movie clips of this and how... A lot of movies, when they do sword sword battles, you know, people are just, they're holding that sword in one arm the whole time, and they're just doing all these fancy tricks, and it's like, no, it, it would be much heavier than that. So, um, so I was trying to follow that, and this time around, um, eventually I gave up on that, because uh, trying to marry the words with the pictures at the same time, it became too much. But what it did do is it, as, as they got to each section of their fight, it it more or less relates to each section of their debate as well. Uh, so I did appreciate that. So what follows is just some loose notes. I don't go real in-depth here this time around because there's not much that goes on plot-wise, right? Um, it is just a fight, and we get to the outcome at the end. And really, ultimately, you don't know the outcome until the next issue, honestly. But just here are some, some thoughts here and there. So page one, Manhunter says, we begin, but they've already begun because you can see slices all over their body. And the, the first main debate is brought out, laid out by Codename Assassin, talking about the three outcomes. Either Manhunter wins and Codename Assassin dies, Codename Assassin wins and Manhunter dies, or they both die. And right away, Manhunter is offering up a challenge to that, deflecting the notion that Codename Assassin has the advantage in those three outcomes because um, Manhunter needs to kill Codename Assassin so he can kill the Commodore. And the only way he can do that is if Manhunter wins. Codename Assassin has to protect the Commodore by killing Manhunter, and he gets to do that in two of those outcomes, if he kills Manhunter or if they both die. So they debate that. They debate if it truly is an advantage. 
Manhunter saying that Codename Assassin probably really ultimately just wants to prove that he's superior than Manhunter. And on page four, Manhunter has a bit of dialogue that harkens back, I felt, to Kirby's Manhunter issue in First Issue Special, where Kirby wrote a text piece at the end about the law of the jungle. That was something that was kind of an ideology about the Manhunters. So Manhunter says, Rationality cannot be defined by only one perspective, in this case yours. The very nature of the beast is for it to be tested in an open environment by any man willing to step into its cage. I am and forever will be such a man. And I thought that, you know, again, I have no evidence about anything I'm talking about here, but I thought that may harken back to some of what Kirby was talking about. So if you go back and search through the digest for first issue special for that Manhunter issue, number five, I think it is. Um, I talked about Kirby's text piece in that in that um, uh, segment. And then at the end of this first short dual break, uh, Codename Assassin says, we talk at each other and to each other then, we agree and disagree and the words stay the same. It is an odd preface to death. And I, I wrote here in my notes, verbal sword fighting. All right, so they do take a break. And uh, here are some more little notes here and there. Page five, Manhunter says, men like you and I, we do not have family. Codename Assassin responds by saying, no, we do not. Now, this series has done a lot to change certain origin stories for uh, specifically like the green team and the outsiders. We talked about that in issue eight. Um, and later on, we see that he, Tom King and company are also changing the origin of these two characters as well. But I liked that little bit of, uh, dialogue because if I try to make connections to first issue special, Codename Assassin does not have family. His sister was gunned down there. His parents were killed when he was a kid and then his sister was gunned down. So I thought that was a nice nod to his origin even if it was unintentional. Page six, they discuss what could possibly be on the other side of this fight in terms of an afterlife or how their reputation will continue on. Uh, they, they have a respite, they have a parlay, uh, and it's initiated by Manhunter. He says to Codename Assassin, you are welcome to join me. Codename Assassin responds by saying, your welcome is as unwelcome as it is unrequired. It felt in that moment like it was like, you know, Jim and Dwight from The Office, you know, that sort of rivalry. This is where in the next couple pages we get some origin stuff from both of the characters. This is around pages 8 through 10, where Manhunter suggests that he's been training to kill since he was a boy, first starting out with poison, then knives, then guns. And we get a little bit of origin stuff from Codename Assassin on page 10, saying he was five when he had his first kill. Now, both of this, both of these um, origin tidbits, very different from First Issue Special. Page 9 and 10, they share a drink from a flask that was in Manhunter's boot. Codename Assassin says, I sensed something was off in your balance. Sometimes when they say things like that, I think the other character is probably doubting that they really thought that. And I even thought that too. I was like, is he just saying that, you know, because he wants to show that he's superior? Um, did he really know that he had something off on his balance? Page 10, Manhunter says... Uh, he offers the idea that they end the whole thing with a flip of a coin. We end it right here and skip all the carving and cutting. It will simply be chance. Why not forego the performance and get to the curtain call? And uh, Codename Assassin scoffs and says, To split our chances down to 50-50 when I began with a two-thirds advantage does imply my idiot idiocy and your cunning. And they decide not to do it. Um, then the next couple pages, 12 through 14, 15, 16, um, they get into the advantage that Codename Assassin has because he has telekinetic power. And he even, first he starts with the coin, he elevates the coin, and then he elevates Manhunter out 
into the open air, you know, they're on top of the building high in New York. So open out in the open air as if he could just drop him and end the whole thing. And Manhunter said, you know, I expected you to use your power if we were in a lock, right? If our swords were locked together and we were really close. I expected you to use your power to overcome me. Konim Assassin says, oh, you expected me to cheat, you mean. And it becomes this whole thing that, you know, uh, Manhunter had to assume that he was going to use his power to with within this fight and he was just waiting for that moment and he hopefully was going to be able to counter it in some way we learn later that codename assassin spent a lot of his power when he formed the metamorpho sword so even though he has it here even just dangling manhunter and then he does actually drop him but then rescues him that kind of eliminates him being able to use his power anymore so the whole reason why he rescues Manhunter, why he lets him fall but then rescues him, is because Codename Assassin calls the Commodore, tells him he has an update, and the Commodore, because he's such a shit, is like, come on, man, can you wrap it up, finish it up, I want to get out of the building, I want to go to a restaurant, they're serving french fries with a whole bunch of different sauces, and I'm trapped here all, all day, and the food is terrible. And you can see the Codename Assassin, he's just over the Commodore's treatment of him and just decides to rescue Manhunter. I also don't think because of that debate before about he wants to prove that he's superior, I don't think he wanted it to end just that easily, you know? And even later on, he says uh, to Manhunter, we are for the first time in the company of our own. And I felt like... You know, he, he just knows the code, uh, the Commodore is a, just a little shit and that there's no value in winning and letting, letting the, and telling the young boy, telling the Commodore, and then the Commodore doesn't even care because he's like, he's not treating it seriously. So by page 18, they get their swords back, they're ready to fight. And Manhunter throws his sword right into Codename Assassin's abdomen, which surprises him. And from here, it just gets bloody. And um, we start to get a little bit more honesty between them. So Manhunter says, you are entirely right. I was entirely wrong. Any man may lose a sword fight. Not every man can change another's mind. I am persuaded. Uh, basically trying to say, look, you know, I'm going to win this, but, you know, there was some, you did have some victory. So Codename Assassin is laying there with this sword in his gut. Manhunter comes in for the kill. Assassin pulls it out of his stomach, knocks the blade out of Manhunter's hand. When Manhunter tries to get his, retrieve his sword, Codename Assassin slices off one of his legs right above the knee, and the two of them are just laying there bloody and really showing their true colors, what they, I feel, what they really wanted out of this fight. For Manhunter, it's that even through all of that debate, he really is just a cliche, a cliche of you are either a hunter or hunted. Um, and for Codename Assassin, all he really cared about was winning, because that's all he says is, I win, I win, I win. And eventually he does. He stabs the Manhunter in the gut, the two of them collapse on each other and fade, the the panels just kind of fade as if they're dying. But there's a coda. We get even more pages of them, of them talking, discussing, debating in an afterlife, in an echo. Um, it's hard to say really what's going on here, um, you know. And then you're like, did Codename Assassin win? Because Manhunter says, look, I have allies. Even though this is the outcome, I have allies. They're going to go after the Commodore should should I fall. And Codename Assassin is saying, eh, whatever. I won this battle. That's all that matters to me. What happens after doesn't really affect this result. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of reflects back to some of what they were talking about in the earliest debate. Um, and it ends with them once again sitting on the edge of the building, even though everything is in blackness. Manhunter just doesn't have a leg. And um, 
it ends with them flipping the coin one more time, talking about that there's one more question that needs to be asked. It, the ending honestly kind of lost me. I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Um, as I mentioned, we don't really get the outcome of this battle until next issue. Uh, but that's where, that's it. That's, that's what this was all leading up to for how many issues, this little battle. And, um, I thought about why, I thought about why the creators took this, uh, journey, why they decided to bottle this issue and just take a moment and really live within one storyline. Um, you know, I'm, the entire first issue special experiment in the 70s, I talked about it being very risky, experimental, complicated. This issue, all three of those things. I talked about comic book jazz, right? Like just sort of riffing on stories and storytelling. And perhaps if there was an issue prior to this that emulated a little bit of that. I mean, look, this whole series is is just risky and, and different. And I feel nine issues in, if you did not read first issue special, it's not going to resonate the same way and probably is very confusing, but it's a different way to tell a larger superhero story within the DC universe. And this issue is a different way to tell a story. So it's not like other issues weren't experimental. I just wish this one is so different from the other ones that, um, it's just hard. It's hard to wrap my head around it. It's hard to, um, it's hard to decide if it works, right? I think it does. I think it does because these two characters, the way they've been presented, this totally makes sense. Narratively, with all that dialogue, I was trying to think there must be some precedence to this. A play, a movie, an international movie, uh, certainly maybe some Shakespeare stuff where language is key, you know. And then I had one notion where Tom King has often cited that Into the Woods, the musical Into the Woods, was just kind of like one small inspiration for this series about where all the characters from every fairy tale are, ex they, they all exist in one location and they all travel through the same woods, you know, Little Red, Cinderella, Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, it's very much like fables, right? Um, or I should say fables is very much like Into the Woods. And there is a song in Act 2 that is, reminds me of this issue. So the composer Stephen Sondheim likes to do patter songs, which are songs that have a lot of dialogue, spoken, sung and spoken very fast, and he does it at least once in every musical. So if you know the musical Company, Getting Married Today is a patter song. And in Into the Woods, in the second act, there's a song called Your Fault. What happens in the second act is because Jack killed one, uh, a giant, the giant's wife arrives in this town, in this woods, and starts causing mayhem. And the other reason the giant got down there is because of magic beans, right? You know, fairy tales, right? So all the cast of characters in the song, they're trying to argue about whose fault is it that the giant got here, the second giant? You know, is it Jack's fault? Is it Little Red's because she taunted Jack to go back up to steal more stuff from the giants and that's why they came down? Is it Cinderella's fault or the baker's wife's fault because they got rid of the beans? Um, and eventually they come down to the fact that it's the witch's fault because she's the one who grew them in the first time in the first place. And it's it's all just very, very patter driven um, lyrics. So, for instance, one of the one of the lyrics in that song uh, it goes like this. I'd have kept those beans, but our house was cursed. She made us get the cow to get the curse reversed. It's his father's fault that the curse got placed and the place got cursed in the first place. So you can see it's all very, you know, um, it's all very, it's wordplay, it's, um, uh, and it's, and it's spoken really fast and the actors have to interject small bits of words into it. And it's just a manic, manic song. Now that energy is not what reminded me of this issue, but certainly the amount of dialogue stopping to, and having to listen to this dialogue and read it and try to make sense of it. 
I wondered if this was Tom King's version of your fault, you know. Again, none of this has evidence. I'm just using everything, the little that I know about the inspiration for this series to make it make sense in my head. One other area that I'm looking uh, to connect this series to is to the Watchmen series. I've been noticing some strange patterns back and forth about different things. And if you go to Watchmen number nine, that is the issue where Laurie, Silk Spectre, and Dr. Manhattan have a discussion on Mars, and it is more or less a debate. It's a, de a debate about Earth's destiny. That's what Dr. Manhattan says. Now, it's also an origin issue for Laurie, and, you know, there are some major revelations at the end, but that kind of back-and-forth nature as they tour Mars may have some similarity to this issue, right? Because um, that is all that happens in that issue uh, is, is just this, again, a bottle issue on Mars having a debate just like Danger Street number nine. So... Uh, whether this is all intentional, whether it's just some weird, uh, happenstance, I think that's kind of cool. And that's it. Those are my notes for Danger Street number nine. We will continue next digest Danger Street number 10 and then number 11. And then once I'm done recording 11, I will then finally read issue number 12 to see how all of this makes sense. So email me, peter at thedailyrios.com, visit the Daily Rios website and Instagram, follow my Twitter, Peter J. Rios, follow, uh, review me on your favorite podcast catcher, follow and review me, send me your book club recommendations if you want to do a, uh, an episode with me uh, about uh, a trade, an original graphic novel, or a collection, send me an email, send me uh, some choices. I mean, like three to five different choices, because I want to try to read something I haven't read before. Um, but then you can participate with me on a book book club episode. Send me your promos, send me your audio talkback clips. This has been the Daily Rios episode 649 for Saturday, December 2nd, 2023. Talk to you soon. And the same guy played Sonic in both shows. Isn't that wild? The same guy playing two different versions of the same guy? <laughs>